2018. Mike Young, stories that need to be told. Wow. The year is over and a new one has begun. I'm finally finding my footing in the podcast world and I'm going to be consistently recording in my favorite place on planet Earth, which is the Comedy Store. For some people, it's their least favorite place on Earth. For me, it's the only fraternity I've ever felt comfortable in. So we got an incredible setup down here. We got five mics. Yeah, five mics, like the old voting on the Source in Source magazine. It's an incredible little room. I'm down here by myself. Every friend, every person, everyone I know is sleeping. Nobody got up. Everybody went out for New Year's Eve last night. They went wild. They went crazy. They went amateur style. But I knew I wanted to start the year off fresh, cutting back on the drinking, cutting up on the extra, just getting it going. Let's get it. I got too much going on this year to be sipping tequila as if it's, you know, a normal thing. So that, that that's a whole other podcast, the drinking in the stand-up world. But I just want to recap. Let's recap. I'm going to recap my year a little bit, as much as I can remember. I just wanted to have like a little freestyle, you know, intro into the new year and uh, some cool things happen. And, and I was like going back and forth in my mind, like, do I, am I, am I going to sound like I'm bragging if I talk about like cool shit that happened? And then I realized about a month ago, I went and did a show in Calgary and I was in Calgary. And, you know, when you do podcasts and you do whatever you do, you don't really know who's listening to your stuff. You don't know who's connecting where and when. And, you know, and I'm in Calgary and I'm about to do a show and these like four dudes dressed like farmers that work in cattle rolled up on me and they were like, Mike Young, bro, we love your podcast. And we were, we came to see you. And that made me feel so good. And I was just, and it also blew my mind because when you release these things into the world, you don't know who listens. You don't know where it goes, how it travels, especially if you're me. I'm like the worst social media person. I don't, you know what I mean? I'm better if I get on your podcast and you guys promote it, but I just don't have the, uh, I don't have the brain set, the savvy for, for, uh, for, for the tech world and for social media. And it's never going to be my thing. So I'm just going to keep doing what I do and hope that it gets out there. But my point is, is that when I saw four strangers roll up on me, I was like, yo, I need to get consistent on my podcast. Even if I only have four fans, I don't care. And uh, I just realized I just sounded like Brody Stevens. If you're in the comedy store, you just start sounding like other comedians for no reason. But anyway, it's been a cool year, and a lot of people were asking me, yo, Mike, what's going on? You know, are you doing another movie? You know, what's ha I was talking, you know, I'd be on a podcast, I'd be talking about Michael Rappaport and myself. We, we did a book together, and so let me just kick off with that experience. So 2017, I get a phone call from Michael Rappaport, the actor, the, you know, super talented. He's been in a hundred movies. He's now he's blowing up huge in social media, Instagram, you know, Barstool Sports, ESPN, everywhere. And uh, I had cast him, I casted him in uh, My Man is a Loser to play one of the, the leads alongside John Stamos and Brian Callen. And we just became friends, and then I and then we then I put him in a stand-up guy. He's just a brilliant actor, hilarious comedic actor as well as dramatic actor, and so we just bonded, and we kind of like 
are cut from the same cloth. Two six-foot Jews, you know what I mean, who think they have swagger, who could play ball. They're both slow-footed. And we just got along. We spoke the same language. And I think he just connected with me because I was probably even a little more rough around the you know, he was rough around the edges, believe me, thrown out of sixteen schools before he ever got to high school. And he's rough. And then we got to talking, got to know each other. He realized, oh shit, Mike Young's might be a little rougher in certain ways. I was not thrown out of sixteen schools, but I just, you know, blue collar, Detroit, scrap metal, not afraid to go at it. Many experiences. We'll get to those later. But anyway, I get a call from Rappaport and literally he's like, yo, listen, this is real. I got a book deal coming. Simon and Schuster is going to sign me to a book deal and I need a ghostwriter. I need someone to collaborate with me. What do you think? There's real money in it. They're going to, it's not like a joke. This is like a real company. And then, you know, that, you know how he is. He's just really going at it like that. You know, well, I'll send you bullet points. We'll collaborate. It'll be big. We'll do it. And when you sign on, and of course, I jumped right in. I was like, absolutely. I want to check a book off my off my bucket list. 100% I want to do a book. So I, so Rappaport calls me, and, and I know how what his style is, and his style is, you know, ranting and hilarity and just, you know, when he... Comedians spend 20 years trying to find a point of view. This dude's got a point of view from Jump Street. He knows his point of view, and he just takes off running, and it's nonstop, and it's funny. So I knew what his point of view was already, and how the world kind of scratches him, and you know he, he's just he's sensitive to the world, and sports were his thing. And I'm not a I'm a huge sports player. I love playing in my men's league basketball, you know, hockey. Every you know I've been playing sports my whole life, but I don't follow stats. I don't jock anybody majorly. You know what I mean? But he's deep in the sports world, so I knew it'd be it'd be a challenge. But I knew I would have his voice, so I signed on. We did the deal with Simon and Schuster, and for the last year, and it took us about ten months, eleven months, of everyday work, and we did the book, and it's called "This Book Has Balls," and it is now a bestseller coming into the new year. And it's not a New York Times bestseller, but I think it's going to end up being a New York Times bestseller. It's been out for about four months now, three months. And it was one of the funniest, coolest experiences I've ever had. Because A, I signed on for the book. I didn't know how much work it truly was going to be. Because the way Rappaport works is, you know, his, his mind works, you know, six different directions. So the opening chapter, I kind of fabricated, I fabricated a, just kind of a funny story about what it was to work with Rappaport. And I actually, I have it on my phone. I have the audio and I'll see if I can pull it up, but I really just, um, actually I am going to try to pull it up. Let me see if I could do that. But I wrote the first chapter, and I basically made up a story about what it was to work with Rappaport. And he is wild to work with, and you have to. It's like having a tiger by the tail. You got to just take what he gives you and try to find a way to structure that and put it in uh, some sort of really you know solid sense. So I basically took that sentiment and wrote sort of a fake chapter you know, called uh, Letters from the Editor. And I know I don't have my reading glasses, so I won't be able to... Uh, I'm definitely not going to be able to be the supportive right? boyfriend who would carry her gym bags. Oh, hold on, hold on. No bullshit. I, I was ready to go three bags deep on both shoulders like a lost father so traveling. The, here's Rappaport. So Rappaport would send me bullet points. 
And I would take those bullet points. I would take the bullet points and turn them into full chapters. Then I'd send them back to him. He would hit me back with what he liked, what he didn't like. We would just ping pong all the time with every subject matter. So there's a ridiculously hilarious chapter, and I'll play an excerpt from it right now, about Michael Rappaport had a true crush on Mary Lou Retton when he was a kid. A real crush on Mary Lou Retton to the point where he had a shrine in his bedroom when he was like 12 years old to Mary Lou. There's a picture of Jordan, there's a picture of Dr. J, and there's a picture of Mary Lou Retton in his bedroom. And so just to give you a sense of what his style was, and we did the audio version for the book, which was incredible. So this is one of my highlights for 2017. And here's a piece from Rappaport's book about Mary Lou Retton. I'll get to the... To the uh, my chapter, I mean, I, I, I worked on every chapter, but I'll get to my copy editor's uh, fabrication soon. I just got to figure out how to do it on the phone. Will your parents let you? Well, I have to ask my mother, or maybe my brother could drop me off. I'm sure it won't be a problem. This is him and Mary Lou. Sure, I guess. Great. Then we could go to Nathan's for a hot dog and a Coca-Cola. <laughs> Sorry, Michael. I don't drink soda. Fuck. Language, Michael. Sorry, Mary Lou. I was so fucked up, I started playing out our married life, too. I was the comfortable husband, and she was the breadwinner. I'm starving, baby. I'll make some chicken pot pie. All right. Yo, Wheaties, course, you got sequence. a photo shoot tomorrow at 6 a.m. Hey, do the whole thing in a leotard, babe. Okay. What are you going to do all day? Oh, my boys are coming over to watch the Knicks game. Don't they work? Huh? I'm telling you, it wasn't right. I was obsessed. It wasn't healthy. I'm still confused as to how or why all this happened. But she became my primary focus during the summer of 1984. I was cheering her on for just a few days before she competed for the gold. And I knew nothing about gymnastics. I couldn't tell the difference between a backflip or a cartwheel. But when I watched Mary Lou compete for the all-around, and when she landed her pressure-filled perfect 10 to win the gold medal, I thought I won too. I was in my sister's room and jumped up when she stuck her perfect landing. And I was jealous when Coach Bella Caroli hugged her and carried her off the mat. I said, put my girl down, you fucking weirdo, you. So that's one excerpt from, and I'll try to get to the copy editor part of it. But that's an excerpt from... My love oh, for Mary... And that's Rappaport talking about his love for Mary Lou Retton. So... He would tell me a story about Mary Lou. I'd go start to write the chapter, and we did this with every single chapter. So there's a chapter on Mary Lou Retton. There's a chapter about uh, Lawrence Taylor, why he was the greatest ball player, uh, football player of all time, and it was because he broke every single record, was the greatest of all time, while also freebasing cocaine. And do you know how great of shape and what an athlete you have to be to be able to play at that level and freebase cocaine at the same time? So it was ridiculous, but... People are loving the book, and I'm really I'm proud of it. I am. I'm you know I'm never one to like really celebrate. I just I don't know. It's that's that's one of my own problems. But for some reason, I mean, this book to me, it was just it was every day we worked on it. We'd meet at the Soho House. We'd you know both of us with our computers, and we would just 
bang out chapters. And I would send him to Mike, and like my favorite thing was him writing back, like, yo, I love it. Move on to the next chapter. And then we would send in, every ch- once every chapter was finished, we send it into Simon & Schuster for the grammar editor or whatever, you know, the guy that puts in commas and periods. And I'm so psychotic when it comes to my writing that I could tell sometimes when the guy at Simon & Schuster, when the guy at, 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 the, at the publishing company, he would add a word. Or like try, I caught him one time like trying to add his own joke, and I, you know, he thought I'd like get by on me, and I called Rappaport. I was like, "Yo, bro, this guy can't just put his own jokes in here." All right, so so I'm not I'm not with that. But let me see if this is the excerpt of. I'm trying to figure out how this works. Hold on, let me see. This audio program is. Okay, here we go. Nobody would really understand or grasp how many snorts. Finally, I want to thank my man Mike Young. Friend, writer, help me write this book. I could not have done this without you. Appreciate everything. Appreciate all the help. You are the real MVP. That made me feel good. Having that in the book. So kept talking loudly with a. So here, here's me reading. Would I leave immediately? Because we had to do audio for everything. An imperative note from the editor. Made this up. My first meeting with Michael Rappaport was offensive, disruptive, and it honestly felt dangerous. He started telling me his thoughts about the book, then sneezed repeatedly, got up from the table without saying a word. He just left. Then he comes back a half hour later acting as if he never even left. I asked him what was wrong. He told me he was allergic to my cologne and would I leave immediately. I didn't know what the hell was going on. I told him I didn't wear cologne. He called me a liar. Then he left the restaurant himself, leaving me stunned and more than slightly concerned about this whole situation. I didn't know if I was fired, but apparently I wasn't since Michael set up our next meeting at a local coffee shop. Within minutes of sitting down, Michael is tossed out of the restaurant and he's banned from the coffee shop for insulting a guy who kept talking loudly with a British accent. Michael claimed the guy was faking the accent and there was no reason he had to talk that loud. Then he threw a used napkin at the guy. The guy almost cried. I told him, some people just speak that way, Michael. Then he shunned me and asked me to pay for his Uber home. I paid for the Uber, but when I received my Uber receipt, I realized Michael had taken an extra 13-mile trip up to see a friend in Malibu. I was having serious doubts about whether or not we could work together. Finally, I regrouped, and we met up at a new restaurant to work, and he seemed all right. But then I asked him about growing up in New York, and Michael thinks I'm accusing him of lying about his upbringing, and he leaves again. This time, he left me with the entire bill. It wasn't until two weeks into the writing process that Michael and I actually sat down and got to work. By this time, we were getting along, but then he has an issue with the chef at the place we were meeting. Michael said he was an anti-Semite because he kept sending out his toasted bagel cold. What the hell's wrong with this guy? I told him it was an honest mistake, but then Michael walks out again, but not before yelling loudly into the kitchen something about the Nazi party. We were only one chapter into the book at this time, so I was extremely worried. Finally, I figured it would be a much better working relationship if we did things through email and phone, and Michael agreed. The first phone call did not go as planned. He said we were going to discuss his point of view on the new breed of basketball players, and by the time I had my notebook out, I hear sirens in the background and Michael's being told by the police that he's got to stop letting his dog loose in the neighborhood without a leash, or else they were going to place him under arrest. 
I knew right then and there this entire book would never get done if we were going to try the traditional writer-editor route of meeting, discussing, and reworking material. That- All right, so you get the picture. You get the picture. That's, that's you know, Rappaport calls me one day. He goes, listen, bro, I know I'm not easy to work with. I know this process has been bananas. I know we're both exhausted. We're, 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 you know what I mean? We, he said, why don't you write a chapter about what it is to work with me and just start making wild shit up. So I basically took the point of view of a fed up editor who was basically scared of Rappaport. And the funniest shit is, is hundreds of people... <laughs> Have have come to Rappaport. They thought that that was real. They thought that that was like a real report of what it was to work with Rappaport. And the truth is, that is not what it was to work with Rappaport. We literally had a great time. We met at the Soho House, which is cool, some cool spot, you know, real some weird hipster shit. But like, still, you know, Rappaport was you know buying lunch every day, and we you know we had a nice surrounding to work in, and. uh it just was a great experience. And for me, it was like a totally different muscle doing a book. You know, it was just something I'd never done, something I'd thought about doing. And when you get an opportunity an opportunity like that, just jump at it, dive in. You know what I mean? Like, forget the fear because part of you is like, I can't, because they made me go through like a process. Like Simon and Schuster had, obviously they have, they have writers they go to, ghostwriters. And I'd never... You know, I've written movies and other things, but like I've never ghost written a book. I've never written a book. And so I had to go through a process. So basically, Rappaport called. He said, yo, do your own, do like half a chapter on Floyd Mayweather. And our take on Floyd was like, great in the ring, not great in life, you know? And then he said, go, you know, do half a chapter on uh, LeBron and why he'll never be like Michael Jordan. And so, you know, we did that chapter. And so I, I did a sample of that. And, um, it was just amazing. And oddly enough, man, everything we started writing about, we wrote about Muggsy Bogues, LeBron James, you know, the Mary Lou thing, uh, Lawrence Taylor, uh, just, just, oh man, I can't even remember all the chapters, but we just, there's like 40, 40 chapters in there, 42 chapters. It's over 75,000 words. Um, but they started coming to life. Like they started coming to fruition. Like he wrote something about LeBron and like the next week LeBron did it. He wrote something about Mayweather McGregor and that came through in the fight Um, because I'm a huge boxing fan and I hate it. I I think I felt like I lost a couple friends at the comedy store because I was just dogging out Conor McGregor so badly. But it, it, it killed me as a boxing fan that that fight even happened. So that was kind of the take I had in the, in the book about it and everything I said in the book came true and you could debate me all day whatever you want yes Conor McGregor landed a great uppercut in the first round but Conor McGregor had 0.3 percent chance of winning that fight you're talking about the great one of the greatest fighters and I don't even like Floyd Mayweather as a human I don't know him I don't care I'm strictly talking business and Floyd Mayweather is one of the greatest to ever do it versus a guy who's like okay at his own sport you know what I mean? Like, he's not even the best at what he does. You know what I mean? Nate Diaz would have had a better shot at fighting Floyd Mayweather as a boxer. So, but McGregor, congrats, bro. You know what I mean? You made millions of dollars. Hopefully, you don't have to give it up to the Irish Mafia because I heard you got in trouble over there. But anyway, that chapter we wrote about and it, things started to come to fruition. So, this book has balls. Michael Rappaport and myself collaborated on it. It was a truly 
awesome experience for me. And I believe we're going to end up doing a, a second book, you know, once this one has its run, because Rappaport's not going to stop ranting. And that, to me, that it was just, it was just a great process. And it, it tapped into a muscle that I hadn't used because I've been writing movies for the last few years and those are very structured and something has to happen by this page, that page, this page, you know, and the book was just a different beast because you can just go, you can just go crazy for one whole chapter, you know, and it's really like a, it's like a rant. It's a spark of a rant. So we had a great time and the book came out and Rappaport was, on a like a crazy book tour he would go to like Barnes and Nobles all over the country and in LA he invited me down to get on the stage with him and and uh and talk about it so that was another another highlight of 17 was at the book signing and I was signing books which was cool you know I was kind of uncomfortable cuz you know my name's not on the book as a ghostwriter you just you know you you're, you're that's you sign off for that you get paid to not have your name on it but you're in another section of the book um, but we, you know, it was great. A whole crowd showed up at Barnes and Noble and we, we, uh, you know, answered questions. People came up, got the book signed, discussed how chapters went, you know, what the process was. It was super cool, you know? And like one of the things I've never been good at and I need to get better at, and it's like, even my family tells me this, it's like, I got to learn to just enjoy these moments. Like just enjoy the moment. You know, because the truth is, I enjoy the work. I don't, I'm not a celebrating, I'm not a celebratory guy. I don't like jump up and down when shit happens. If I get a deal, I just, my mind goes right to, okay, now we got to get to work. Um, I probably should learn to just enjoy it, embrace it more than I do. And I'm not sure what that is. That's my own problem. I got to go see a psychiatrist. We'll talk it out. But this book has balls. Highlight of 2017, one of them. And then, uh, so then, so the book is done. And also in the very beginning of 2017, uh, the movie that I wrote and directed called A Stand-Up Guy got picked up by Netflix. And I realized how much I don't celebrate because when I got to the comedy store in the beginning of 2017 and my movie was on Netflix, I didn't tell anybody. But I also was like, well, what am I going to do? Walk into the comedy store with a shirt that says, go watch a stand-up guy? I just don't do that. Like, I like other people to talk shit. Like, let other people brag about you. Let other people kind of push your stuff. I don't know, man. Maybe I got it backwards. Maybe that's why, like, I'm not famous. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know. I'm not... The, the, the fame game doesn't, like, get me hooked. I've got famous friends. You know what I mean? I see how stressed they are. I'll take the long road. I like the work. So anyway, a second highlight was when a stand-up guy got picked up by Netflix and they bought it for a two-year run. So that movie starring Jay Ferguson, Ethan Suplee, Michael Rappaport, Danny Abacazer, Bob Saget. Um, that was another hilarious thing. So I write the movie. I know I'm going to direct it. Um, the way the movie came about was uh, Danny Danny A., Danny Abacazer, who's the lead and the stand-up guy, who's an actor and producer as well, uh, and director. He just directed First We Take Brooklyn. But Danny, he was at my premiere of My Man is a Loser, and afterwards, he's one of these guys, like straight-up street cat from Brooklyn, you know, hustle, 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 get shit done like you can't even believe. Like, if you're out there and you th want to know if it can be done with 
You know what I mean? Just a dream, a prayer, and hard work, it can be done. Danny used to own nightclubs. Next thing you know, he's starring in movies, directing movies. So there's no, don't let anybody tell you shit because this kid, you know, he's five foot five and tan and he's just making things happen. So he was at my premiere of My Man as a Loser. He enjoyed the movie. He happened to be with one of his finance guys. They called me the next day, Mike, we want to make a movie with you. I'm like, yeah, everyone says, you know, come on, like, how are we going to do that? He's like, I got a film slate. I got $11 million to make six movies. We're going to do a movie. Here's my idea. And he gives me his idea. And I don't like the idea that he gives me. I don't, I'm not feeling it. I can't, and I can't, you know, making a movie so damn hard that you can't just dive in and have it be something you don't like because you could die making a movie. You know what I mean? It's exhausting. You better love it. Unless you're like on a straight money grab and you're like a big time director and you just need to get money, you know, go ahead, do your thing. But like an independent film is so tough to make that you better love it. So he told me the idea. It was about like a basketball player and overage and goes back to college. And And I knew it was his way of wanting to go play basketball in a movie. And I basically called him. I said, hell no. Here's the idea. The idea is, and this was, um, you know, if you've heard my podcast, you know, a couple of years, a year ago, I I told this story about how I got in trouble. You know, I was in trouble for a little while and um, it was a bad situation. It was kind of like with some bad people. I don't want to get too deep into it, but there was like an organized crime situation. It was ticked, it was touch and go for a while for me on some certain things. So anyway, I used to always have this thought in my mind that God forbid, what if I had to go into the witness protection program? And if I, which I never would have to, I mean, really, I didn't have to, I did not go. But I always had the idea after this, like, what if, what if you have to go to the witness protection program Am I, would I just not be funny anymore? Like, do I just stop my personality and like all of a sudden I'm not the same guy? That was the seed. And so basically out of that came, was born the idea of a gangster goes into witness protection. He does an open mic night on a dare. He becomes accidentally famous while the mob is trying to get him. And that's what a stand-up guy is about. And so... Danny bought the idea. He bought right into it, which it was great because it was perfect for him because he's one of the funniest people in life that I know. Just his a character, a straight character. Like we went to dinner last night for New Year's, and he used to be a club promoter, club owner, Avenue, One Oak, all that type of shit, that wild high end, you know, L.A., New York shit. And he's like, I've known Jay Z for twenty four years. I'll text him right now. When I first met Jay-Z, he was in a polo buttoned up to his neck. I was like, who is this guy, an accountant? He's that guy. So anyway, long story longer. Uh, we I make a stand-up guy, and you know, Danny just, after we made it, you know, he financed it. And it was a million dollars, a little bit over a million dollars. And um, to me, it taught me, because My Man is a Loser was a $5 million budget. And what I learned was... I dig doing an inexpensive movie because it forces you to write as much funny shit as you can with dialogue and like really turn your brain on because you don't have the money to go fly an airplane. You know what I mean? You're not having a fucking police chase for five minutes. That costs $100,000 every day. You know what I mean? So it forced me to like write just interior, walk and talk, dialogue driven, and just get creative, you know, it was just a great muscle to work. 
and I and I loved it. So anyway, wrote, directed it, was on the road with Saget while I before we shot it. I knew that I had a part that Bob could would be great at. I created this character who was like a sad country singer, and every song was just it was dark. Every song he wrote was just another level darker than what country music already can be. You know what I mean? He writes about, you know, he's stalking, he's, you know, depressed, he's suicidal. I wrote him just this really dark character and basically, and just gave him the role and he knocked it out of the park and took it damn seriously as an actor. I must say Saget was calling me nightly and he was like, you know, singing me the songs over the phone like how does this sound he went into a new character so Saget killed it and uh when the movie came out Bob was so awesome he basically was on every tv show radio station talking about the movie and it was uh, a great ride to be on and you know as I'm talking about it it's like I'm thinking god I wasn't even enjoying it when that was happening I'm like learning a lesson about myself right now. And that lesson is I need to enjoy these moments because they're fleeting and they're what I came out here for. And I need to fucking, you know, I don't need to pat myself on the back, but I need to start enjoying this shit. So that was a great ride. We had the premiere, blah, blah, blah. The movie came out, hit the digital world and theatrical world same day. It was out of the theaters quickly because it's a super indie and Netflix bought it, and it's been running for two years, and it's still on Netflix right now. So if you want to check out a stand-up guy, it's a lot of fun. I'm in it for a minute, and I put myself in both my movies, and I also realized on the next one, uh, that I think we're going to be shooting in March or April, uh, I'm putting myself in a little more. You know what I mean? As the writer, director, producer, I'm putting myself in more movies, in, in, in more time. I could have done whatever I wanted. I put myself in for 30 seconds. I'm putting myself back in. So anyway, a stand-up guy on Netflix, highlight number two, 2017. Highlight number three, 2017 for me, and it really, besides just having a knock on wood, just being healthy all year, you know, just, you know, thank God, you know, because that's really all, as a, as a Jew, I'm just neurotic anyway, and I just want to stay healthy, but Besides that, the next the next uh, highlight was I get a call from one of my boys, right? My boy Chuck. Chuck calls me. Chuck's a character. He's a big manager, producer. He's been making big movies with Jamie Foxx and Nick Cassavetes for years. And we've been friends for 20 years. And he's really a guy that's kind of responsible for really bringing me into this crew. And you've heard me talk about like how I got into a basketball league 17 years ago and on my team was Leonardo DiCaprio, Toby Maguire, Kevin Connolly, Nick Cassavetes. Like this was my team. Now then I was basically an open mic comedy store guy, but my boy Chuck had worked at the newsstand and used to come to the comedy store all the time. And he grew up in LA with these guys. And one day he was like, yo, we got, we need a player. Do you, can you play basketball? I was fresh out of Detroit, summer league, I can ball, still slow-footed, but I could pretty much hang in any game that's not a professional or semi-pro or college, you know, I could I could hang. So, long story short, brings me to the game, boom, that's my team, we end up becoming friends, now we're all, we have all been friends for, you know, 20 years, but I get a call five months ago, four months ago, something like that, from Chuck, who now works at a company, it's called LBI. It's Rick Yorn who produced, you know, Boardwalk Empire, all of DiCaprio's movies, 
awesome dude, incredible manager. He's been managing Leo for his whole career. And Chuck calls and he's like, Young, I got this guy. You got to meet him. He's a great guy. You're going to love him. Young director wants to finance a situation. I think you're the perfect guy to talk to him. I don't know what he's talking about. I'm, I just say, of course, I'll be there. I go in. I go in on a Tuesday, 3 o'clock. In walks this dude, young dude. Looks like he's got, you know, half a million dollars in diamonds on his neck. I think he had gold teeth. And he sits down and he's just a sweet, big, cool teddy bear that loves making movies. And his name's Doug Jordan. I could tell you his name. You know, I'm not going to... I thought about not saying names, but you know what? You know what I mean? You're here in Calgary. You'll be all right. So, uh, so his name's Doug. I sit down at the table with Doug, and he had made this short film called Sins of, the, Sins of My Father, and it's in a dope little short film. And I watched the film before I went to the meeting, and it was like really on some like cool street American gangster shit, which is right, right up my alley. I loved it. So I go in. I sit down. I sit down with Chuck, and Chuck is a man of few words. He doesn't really mince words. He doesn't, you know, he's he's he re- he recognizes that you know, time is money, and that's how he lives. So we sit down, and Chuck basically says, "Young, I brought you to the table because I think you'd be perfect. This guy's looking for someone to write the next two movies and create a development situation where you will have a writer's room to develop movies, and you will write his next two films yourself." And so that's, that's, I'm basically at a job interview. So we start talking and the guy starts telling me how he loves boxing and he, and he was looking to get the rights to the guy that was trying to fix the Ali Frazier fight. Now the Ali Frazier fight, I'm sorry, Ali Foreman, Ali Foreman fight in uh, the rumble in the jungle or uh, damn, where did they fight in Zaire? I think so. I, I can't remember. But anyway, Ali Foreman, when Everybody thought Foreman was going to knock out Ali. Ali played the rope-a-dope, knocked out Foreman in the grandest fashion. That, he was looking to do a story about this gangster that was behind the scenes in that fight. And so, I come from the boxing world. You know, I told my, you know, my dad was good friends with Emmanuel Stewart from Detroit. Tommy Hearns' little brother, Jesse, went to my high school. We were friends. I became really good friends with Tommy Hearns later in life. When I was in a rap group, Tommy financed the situation in the 80s. That's true. When I was like a young dude, just dreaming about like getting into hip hop. And uh, I'd be going over to Tommy's house, playing basketball, hanging out. Anyway, we start talking boxing at the table. And before you know it, it's just a comfortable situation. And we're both on the same page as far as sentiment goes. And so... He tells me, you know, these are the type of movies that he wants to make. I tell him the type of movies I want to write. And next thing you know, that night he calls Chuck, says, Chuck, I don't need to meet any other writers. This is my guy. So cut to, he calls my lawyer, or his lawyer calls my lawyer, and they make a deal. And for the last four months, I've been in a really amazing situation, and I feel so blessed because... You know, this business, man, you don't know where your next shit's coming from. You don't. There's no, and I don't give a shit about the unions that we have. I mean, yeah, it's cool to be in a union. It's protecting you when you're always working, but no one's out there hustling for you. No agent, you know what I mean? No, if you have a good manager, God, you're lucky. You know what I mean? I personally feel like I've been, I'm tough to manage because I'm always moving. I'm always keeping it moving and like, 
I'm just keeping it moving. So you gotta, I'm unmanageable at times, but I will, I'll get a manager this, this year probably. And you know, if I need one and we'll, we'll see where that goes. But in the meantime, um, I signed the deal and I got to just tell you that five months prior to this, every day I was thinking about, I was thinking about like becoming not an executive, but I was thinking like, what if I, what if I walked into a management company and I took like some of my amazingly talented friends who are miserable in their company and where they're at, and I took them to one company. I, I swear to God, I was having this thought, and I was like, what if I take them over to say, you know, LBI or 360 to a management company? Uh, Brillstein Gray. And I just go to the head of that company. I go, I'm bringing you five clients. They're going to be under my umbrella. You're going to pay me this. We're going to develop this and do this. I was on my life. I was having that thought. And it's almost like I was daydreaming about something like that. And so the next thing I know, I get put into that exact type of situation, except that it's my company. Redleaf Entertainment signed a deal with Transcend Media. My company, Redleaf, is now developing with Transcend, we're developing two movies, we're developing a TV show, and I'm writing the next movie about a bank robber in Detroit for Doug to direct. And so I guess my point on that is, I swear to God, when you like really, it sounds crazy because I don't even know if I would, I believe it, but I have to believe it because it happened. But like, when I was a kid, I would I would daydream so hard about like being a stand-up comedian. I would daydream so hard about directing. And I was like, like 12, 13, 14. I kind of knew what I wanted to do, but I would really like dream hard. I, like, I'd be zoned out. Did not do great in school. Teachers would be like, yo, young, wake up. Where the fuck are you? Where's your head? And a couple, t- one teacher called me Spongehead. He was like, you're just an airheaded kid. You're never here. You're always drifting off somewhere. They thought I was just a fucking weirdo. You know, I mean, even though I was cool and played sports and whatever, but like they weren't really believing in me as like a human being, I don't think. Anyway, my point is I dreamed hard. And when you dream hard like that, I think it does set into play things in the universe and it starts lining up. And if you're awake enough to recognize it, then like you're good. So my advice to you is whatever you really love to do and you're dreaming about, dream hard about that shit in your off time. And then work hard, and then it's going to come to you. It's going to come. But don't make your dream to be famous for some fucking empty reason. Make your dream to be like, let me make great shit and share it with people and see if they like it. And like, you know what I mean? Make the world a better place, you know? Whatever it is. I'm not getting, I don't want to get preachy. Anyway, highlight number three for 2017 was my company, Red Leaf, developing a situation with Transcend Media and Doug Jordan. And the funniest shit was when I met Doug, he looks like a hip-hop kid. And I knew his last name, but I didn't know, I didn't look him up, I didn't research him, I didn't do anything. But, so in my mind, I'm like, oh shit, maybe Michael Jordan has a kid that no one knows about. Of course, that was not the case. And this just happens to be a great dude who's financing a situation. And I don't ask questions about where you get your money from. You know, it's not my business. But the point is, and money comes from all angles in this in this town, in this world, you know, and it's just been, it's been a great journey so far. And so the first movie that we're doing is, the working titles is, is called Prevail, 
and th- just because that's the kid's name. But basically, this movie is Catch Me If You Can in the Hood. Because back in Detroit in the 90s, there was a kid who was a basically a scam artist, little con artist. But his reasons for doing what he did were different than Leo's reasons in Catch Me If You Can. Catch Me If You Can, Leo's, the divorce of his parents, the the desire to uh, please his father, to you know show his dad he could be something even though he was a con man. It drew, That was the driving force for this dude. But my dude, his driving force was like, I am never going to be fucking poor again. I have got to take care of my mom because she's on crack. You know what I mean? And she's fucking selling dope out of the house. And I got no father. So his motivation was different, but he had a genius brain. And he's been out of prison now for a while. And so I got to spend, you know, tens and tens of hours so with him already. And interviewing him, putting him on camera, getting all the information, and then going to work. So I'm probably 60 pages into the movie. And it's pretty damn cool. And he he was so smart that when he went on his first bank robbery, and he was robbing banks with credit cards. They were punching their own numbers. But when he started robbing banks and with his crew, he realized right away that his crew was unfit. He had like a ragtag crew. And his crew, they were just unfit. And so because they were unfit, he's like, fuck this. I'm about to start a little school for these dudes. And he got an abandoned, an abandoned house in Detroit and he put them through their own little school of scams. And he taught them personality, how to talk, how to walk, how to compliment the bank teller, when to talk to the teller when they're looking down. At what moment do you crack a joke? At what moment, you know what I mean? And how, you know, how do you act at the jewelry store when you're trying to get jewelry? I mean, he put these kids through the ringer and he made millions of dollars back in the day. And it's not a new scam. Everybody's heard of, you know, swipers and dudes punching their own credit cards and shit like that. But this was, this is a kid who had a special talent for conning. You know what I mean? He knew to take a white crackhead, put her in the mix of his bank robbery crew. And, you know, because she didn't look like anybody else in the hood and she would get the $8,000, you know, every time they hit a lick, you know, and it's just a it's a very cool story and i it's 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 i'm loving writing it i really am i'm watching all these old teach you know i'm from detroit so i'm watching all these old detroit gangster documentaries crime docs talking to my boy we went back to detroit so for a little research on the movie so pre-thanksgiving uh my boy doug who's who's gonna direct the movie who's also financing it I was like, yo, bro, I'm going back to Detroit a few days before Thanksgiving. Why don't you come back there and see what the city is like? You know, we'll go meet Prevail, you know, the bank robber, uh, the you know, the ex-con who the movie's about. We'll go kick it with him, and we'll go around Detroit. And this way, you can get a feel for the texture of the city, for the characters of the city, for the people, and the way the city feels. So he's like, no problem, bro. I'll get the private jet. I'm like, you don't need to get the private jet, bro. Delta go. You don't need to spend crazy money. He's like, no, nah, it'll be more fun. What am I going to do? Argue against a private jet? Next thing I know, and of course, I'm still a neurotic Jew. So I'm like, what kind of plane is it? Is there catering? What's going on? What time do we leave? When do we land? So bottom line is we get the private jet and we go to Detroit. And Doug's funny, man, because he's got an assistant who's like a beautiful girl. You know what I mean? She's just a stunning woman is his assistant. He brings this other, you know, he brings another girl 
that he wants to hang with him. He's got a couple dudes that roll with him that kind of handle business, one security type of guy. And we go, and we go to Detroit, and we go and we meet up with our guy. He takes us around the city. And ironically enough, the dude is now, you know, been out of jail for 15, 16 years. He started a music company in Detroit, and he owns a studio. And he's friends with like Trick Trick and some real heavy hitters in Detroit. So he takes us to Trick Trick Studio. Now, if you don't know who Trick Trick is, look him up. If you listen to any of Eminem's old songs, if Eminem had a problem, call Trick Trick. Trick Trick was the dude, he, you know, he ran the Goon Squad. If you look up the song Detroit vs. Everybody, it's Big Sean, Eminem, Royce the 5'9", Danny Brown, and Trick Trick. So we go, and I'm kind of excited because he's like a legend, you know, and you got to just pay respect to Uncle Trick, you know, and I had never met him before. And we go to the studio, and of course, he's like the nicest guy. You know what I mean? He's a big fella. He's all business. And when you like meet someone that's been through a lot and has just, who's just got like firm beliefs, and I don't want to, I'm not going to call him, I'm not going to say he's a gangster because he's not a gangster. He's Now he's a businessman, but he's got respect in the streets at a high level. And when you meet someone like that, you can kind of feel their presence in the room, and I could feel it. And at this point in his life, he's just a businessman. He's got three or four businesses, you know, owns car wash, you know, restaurant, you know, got his own studio, has a show on Shade 4 or 5. But this is a man that you do not fuck with. And if you are cool with him, you know, he can probably make things happen a lot easier. And it was good for us to meet him because when we go shoot in Detroit, we just want to be protected and we just want to make sure nobody comes into the city, you know, with the wrong idea. And we just want to be respectful of Detroit because that's where I'm from. And I shot, I wrote a movie called Grounded with Aaron Paul and Jeff Daniels that'll be out next year. I didn't direct it, but what I didn't like was I saw people come to Detroit and shoot movies and really just like take a shit on Detroit. And they didn't give a fuck about Detroit. They just came there, used Detroit, and got out and left their shit behind. And that was like some bitch-ass Hollywood mentality. And I am from Detroit. I'm from Southfield, Michigan. You know, 8 mile, 9 mile, 10 mile, 11 mile, 12 mile. You know what I mean? I'm from Southfield. Very diverse community. We take pride in Detroit. My dad went to Mumford. My mom went to Mumford. Trick Trick went to Mumford. And so I didn't like the idea of like film crews coming there. You know what I mean? Hollywood's got some real bitch made people in it. You know what I mean? So they just come there. They don't give a shit about your city. So I was, I'm all for paying a tax. You know what I mean? I'm all for come check in with Trick Trick if you're going to shoot a movie and make sure, you know what I mean? You got to be respectful of, of the home town. So anyway, we met with, we met, we met with Trick had a you know there's like 15 of us there chopping it up talking stories you know i want to get on his show on shade four or five and uh bottom line is we're gonna go we're gonna go we had a great run and so we toured detroit we check out the texture we meet the characters that are involved in the movie meet the dude some dude was had written you know big couple songs for big sean uh it was a super cool time before Thanksgiving, I took Doug and his crew to Detroit. I brought them to my house just so they could meet the family. They met the nephews, my mom, my brother, my sister-in-law. You know, I kind of had to, you know, you got to you got to yeah, you got to have a sit down 
before you move forward in business with people, I believe. You know, you got to have some kind of breaking of the bread. And it was the most perfect breaking of, you know, breaking bread moment. And so we kicked it at my mom's house for a couple hours. And we went out, we partied, we had a blast, went to a real Detroit hood strip club. Uh, next thing I know, there's like 10,000 singles on the floor while a girl's standing on her head. I got the pictures. It was great. So that was, let's call that situation between Red Leaf Entertainment, my company, and Transcend. Let's call that, let's call that highlight number four or whatever, three or four, wherever we're at. Um, something else that happened in, in 17 that was not a highlight was my mom had another stroke. She had somewhat of a minor stroke. And she had had a stroke six years ago and had made basically a full, fantastic comeback through a lot of hard work. And, you know, strokes, I don't want to say strokes don't get enough credit, but you're always hearing people talk about raising money for cancer and raising money for this. It's like, listen, have you ever motherfucking seen somebody that had a stroke? It can fucking take you out of the game. And thank God my mom is doing great now again, but... In the beginning, she lost her ability to truly, you know, articulate like she could. She lost, um, you know, the ability to walk on her own. And I watched her go from wheelchair to walker to cane. And it's been nine months now since since that stroke about. And she's doing great. You know what I mean? It's, she really is doing great. And she's almost fully independent again. But that shit knocks you down. That's like taking a standing eight and you don't know if you're getting back in the fight. You know what I mean? And it was like due to a clot somewhere in the brain and they really don't even know, you know? And so as she was getting better from the stroke, boom, she got hit with something in her hip. She needed a hip replacement. So she took a fucking double hit. And it was just a heavy ass year for my mom. And it was just my brothers in Detroit it's heavy on him. I went home for a while and then had to get come back. And, you know, there's like a little bit of guilt on my shoulders for not being there all the time. But she's got full-time help. She is doing great. At this point, it's more, it's just like, let's get the mental attitude strong too. Because, and I realize that like, I'm a bitch. I'm a bitch sometimes. I'm just, sometimes I'm a bitch. Like I look, I, I tell my mom, you know, get your head straight. Let's get in the fight. Think positive. I could say all the bullshit I want, but meanwhile, if I got a fucking little bit, little bitty knee injury, I'm depressed. If I got the flu, I'm fucking depressed. You know what I mean? You can't tell me shit. So for me to be preachy, I, I gotta, I gotta take a step back on that and realize she's gone through heavy, heavy shit, but she is making the comeback. And whatever we can do just to get her back, we're doing. And because of the stroke, you know, every year we go up to Charlevoix, Michigan, spend time on the lake. But this year we did not go spend a lot of time because of her her situation. But that being said, that was a big hit that the family, that my family took. And so Thanksgiving was different because now my mom, you know, she every year for 25 years, she's been making Thanksgiving on her own for 40 people. All my cousins come into Thanksgiving. It's a huge time of year for us. You know, we have a big Hanukkah party that's even though it's not Hanukkah, but for us, it's like a huge moment. You know, all the cousins get together and we are, you know, I got 21st cousins. We're, we're like brothers and sisters straight up. And so this was heavy for her because my cousin Michelle and Craig, my cousin Michelle and Craig, they had to come in and cook the turkey, do the whole damn thing. Of course, my mom was sitting around the kitchen going, I don't know, that turkey looks undercooked. Don't, the stuffing doesn't go like that. So 
Obviously, you can't pick your family. There's always tension, but we got through it. My cousins did an amazing job. It was all love. It was definitely one of the best Thanksgivings we ever had. And, you know, the irony of the irony of our family is we are like cousin-wise, like we are the closest you can be. Like, you know, I got cousins in every aspect of the world too. One of my cousins, my brother works with my cousin. They own a beautiful, gigantic, you know, insurance reconstruct, you know, construction company. Um, it's called Blue Team Restoration. They're all over the planet. It's a huge company. So I got people in construction. My other cousin's a high-level divorce attorney. My other cousin, you know, does interior design. One works in D.C. I got a female, you know, one cousin's married to Mr. Skin. <laughs> True story. You know, Mr. Skin from Howard Stern is my is our cousin. He, you know, Jim McBride, he's fucking awesome. You know, we, we got a very diverse, wild, fun family. <clears throat> my other cousin married an agent at UTA. So whatever I need over there, I just make a phone call. We go over to UTA, have a meeting. You know what I mean? So we got a fun family. My uncles drink heavily. We all party hard. It's all love. But the irony of the family is we've, we've seen a lot of tragedy. You know, there was a 10-year period from sixth grade on where somebody died in our family. And I don't want to get morbid in 2018, but just to keep life in perspective, these were, you know, there were three suicides. There was cancer. There was, you know, for 10 years, I literally was thinking to myself, we're fucking cursed. We're a cursed family. We're cursed. Every year we're in. But then, you know, the beautiful irony was me and my cousins would always find a way to have fun no matter where we were, no matter what was going on, no matter how much tragedy hit us at a young age, you got to find the fun. And that's like the theme of my life, straight up. You know what I mean? I don't want to be shallow about it, but like finding the fun, I'm, tr I'm a professional fun finder. I'll find the fun. I remember even back in the day when people were dying, my friends would be like, yo, young, how the fuck are you still happy? And it's either in my DNA or I got it from my dad, who, of course, passed away young also, another one of the tragedies. But my dad was a fun person. He just was the most fun. You know what I mean? Like my dad, like people gravitated towards my dad. And this this will transition nicely into another mini highlight and uh, of 2017. But, you know, I got to give a shout out to my dad because I feel him with me. I feel him in me. Like, that sounds like a Saget joke. But, you know, my dad, I, I was lucky. There was, to put it in perspective, there was 1,500 people at my dad's funeral. He wasn't the mayor. He wasn't, you know what I mean? He wasn't the chief of police. You know what I mean? He was just a great guy. And when you're a great guy, that's who shows up. And my dad knew everybody in Detroit. He knew the gangsters. He knew the lawyers. He knew doctors. And my dad was in the scrap business. Scrap metal in the 80s was a cash business. He was driving a dump truck. I was I was driving the dump truck. You know, it's a rough business. But he was a hustler, and he made it on his own, and people just loved him. And so, uh, you know, I just... I guess I, I guess I'm ending up transitioning into a shout out to my dad, and he's I'm everything I am is is because of my parents, you know what I mean? And my dad lives with me and my brother all day, every day, you know. And uh, but this transitioned into another highlight because when I would go home, see my dad before he was ever in the scrap metal business, he used to run an all men's health club, 
and it was the mafia headquarters in Detroit in 1975. I know this sounds like a movie pitch, but it's not. My dad just had a job. He was basically running the racquetball courts, making sure the scheduling was going well, making sure whoever needed to have their meetings had their meetings, ran the lunch place in there. And it's kind of like when you watch Boardwalk Empire, like Nucky Thompson had that office. This was the office for the mob in the 70s. So the reason I'm even telling you this is because I wrote a story about it. I wrote a pilot episode on my own. I didn't try to sell it to anybody. I didn't do anything. It was just something I had to get off my chest because every time I go to Detroit over the last, my dad's been gone for 26, 7, fuck, 28 years almost. But uh, I would go back to Detroit and I'd see his friends and his friends, you know, rest in peace, Freddie, rest in peace, Dennis. Oh, actually, you're not going to believe this, but this is fucking white boy Rick calling me right now from prison. I think I'm going to answer the phone right now. I'm answering the phone right now. This is a great interruption. Well, listen to this. Hello, this is a prepaid collect call from... Rick. An inmate at Florida Correctional Institution. This is white boy this Rick, call famous. Is subject to reporting and monitoring. Matthew to McConaughey plays his father in the movie. One, to refuse charges, press two. Thank you for using Teenetics. You may start the conversation now. Hello. Yo, Rick. Hey, happy new year, buddy. Yo, happy new year, man. How are you? I'm all right. I'm all right. What, did you go out partying last night? I did, bro, but I kept it low. I kept it like it was... I'm trying to not drink in 2018 like I was in 17, and I'm just trying to bring yeah. it in. I'm trying to bring it in healthy. Yo, Rick, all listen. Right. Yo, listen, bro. I'm doing a podcast. Do you? Are you cool being on it for a little bit or what? I don't care. What are you doing? We're doing it now, bro. I'm in the studio, and I saw that you called, and I, I just, I, you know, I didn't want to miss another call. So I'm literally by myself in the studio, and. If you're cool, I'm just going to keep rolling on the podcast, and you and I are just going to talk. Yeah, it's cool, but Count's going to be any minute, but we can talk until they until they do it. All right, well, I'll just say to my people, yo, this is my boy. They called him White Boy Rick, Rick Wer- Richard Wershey, and he's been, he's been locked up for what, Rick, 27 years? Oh, 30 years, bro. 30, 30 years and two weeks, three weeks. 30 years and three weeks, which is obviously way too damn long for the circumstances. And for my listeners out there, just to let you know, you know, they just did the movie. They just shot the movie about his life. And just long story short, because I know Rick counts about to happen. You're going to have to go. But I'll just I'll just let him know, like, there was a lot of corrupt shit going on in Detroit back in the day. And they, oh, absolutely! It was corruption. It, it was, it was corruption. It was uh, lying. I mean, corruption at its highest form from the government on down. But people should go see the movie and and watch the documentary, and and it'll explain everything. What's the official title of the movie, Rick? Uh, White boy Rick. White boy Rick is the movie. McConaughey, yeah. Matthew, Matthew McConaughey plays your dad. Yeah, Matthew McConaughey plays my dad, and a little young kid out of Baltimore, Richie Merritt, plays me. Good kid, street kid, reminds me so much of myself. That's bananas. Yo, did you get to spend time with the kid? Did he come visit? No, I I didn't get to, but I got to talk to him on the phone and and 
you know, me and him became quite close, and, and I looked at, you know, spending some good time with him when I get out, and he's just a great kid, man. I, I did get to spend some time with McConaughey, and, you know, he's a great guy, and I couldn't have picked him someone better myself for my dad, you know? Yeah, and the, who, who directed it? What, Jan, what's his last name? Yeah, Jan Demange. Jan Demange Jan directs Demange. the movie. It's like he's a great director, and I work with Scott Silver from Eight Mile, and uh, I've worked with uh, Andy Weiss, and uh, I'm at a loss, but right now the guy from the Harry Potters, I, I can't even think of his name. He worked right. real hard. Scott Frank it, it Scott was, Franklin uh, is one of your producers. Scott Franklin's a great producer. Yeah, John Lesher. There, there, there was a team of producers. You know, it was, it was a Matthew Cruel. It was a, it was a team effort, and they put together a, an all-star team. And you know, Jeff Robinoff ultimately is the one that made it happen from Studio Eight. Yo, the crazy thing is, is you're gonna see this movie. It's gonna blow your mind. And it's going to let you know, man, that there are, you know, powers that be that control the system and our system is broken. And especially in Detroit in the 80s, the shit that was going on was just beyond unfair. And Rick, yeah. you know, I know we don't have time to it's tell the whole... It's definitely a flawed system for people that have never been involved in it. Our, our People say we have the greatest justice system in the world, but... If you've ever been a part of it, I don't know if you'd feel that way or people's families feel that way. It's definitely flawed, and, you know, hopefully it'll change for the better. I I, I got about 30 months or so to do, and, and my time will come to an end, but I won't forget the people that are left behind because it definitely needs to change. It's become more of a business than anything. And there w there's that documentary I saw on Netflix that talks about prison system being a business. But even in your situation, we got to fix the system. You don't need to be in prison for 30 years on a nonviolent drug offense. You know what I mean? Especially for a crime that the government got you to do as a juvenile. Exactly. When your brain is everybody, And then everybody lied about it and covered it up. Exactly. You're a 15-year-old kid. You're getting used by the system. You don't know what's going on, really. Your brain's not even the, fully the developed. The best part is if people look back to the 80s and... and all the coke was coming out of Miami and these drug kingpins. And none, I mean, a harsh sentence in Miami for a true drug kingpin back then was 20 years, and you did about 12 off of that. But the guy I was getting the drugs from, he did six months in prison. That's not even a, a, a sentence. Was that your, you're talking about the Miami Connect? Yeah. And that was yeah. probably because he had, so he probably had high-level connections where he, he paid off whoever was going to give it to him. Oh, it, it, they definitely were plugged in down there. I mean, to get a <clears throat> to get a six, excuse me to get a six month sentence for all the coke that guy moved that was crazy. Right, and uh, it's funny because I, I started listening to that book uh, about the Mutiny Hotel, about the uh, the cocaine cowboys, the uh, Scarface yeah. Hotel, and I think yeah, that, that's a great book. And I great think, book. I think one of the dudes you're talking about was in that man. But yeah, there's quite a few of them in there that were, I mean, you, you had Los Muchachos, the boys who Willie Falcone and Sal Magluda. And, uh, I think Willie ended up with like, I think 20 years. And this guy was a billionaire. He, he flooded Miami and the rest of America with cocaine. And he ends up doing, I think 12 or 13 years in prison or something.
Yo, Rick, when you were going down to Miami and like, you know, making your connects down there and you were so damn young, did you have any idea, like, just kind of like the heaviness of what was around you? Because like even reading that book, you knew there was like, there were some killers, you know what I mean? They were killers at the mutiny hanging out. There was bloodshed happening, especially over there back then. You like, forget just Detroit. Oh, yeah, it was, I mean, listen, there was, Detroit was the murder capital of the world back then and or the, or the United States anyway, and. Miami was, I think, number two. But when you grow up in that environment, to put it bluntly, you're a kid and you're just too dumb to realize it. You know, right? Like murder, like the like taking a life was just part of the game, part of the language. Yeah, I mean, listen, my best friend died. You know, it, it was it came with the territory, and you know, I was so dumb that he he died, and I kept doing what I was doing. I was, you know, you're, you you don't. You don't walk away at that point. When are you going to walk away? So it was just something that, you know, I was brought into and taught and told it was all right to do. And I knew it was wrong, but, you know, the greed, the greed is what gets you. The greed, the women, the cars, you know, the the lifestyle. You just, you become addicted to the lifestyle. And that's you know, right. I, I, I was a 17-year-old kid hanging out in Cats at Coconut Grove, you know. Yo, you were seventeen year old kid, sixteen year old, fifteen year old kid getting flown to Las Vegas to the prize fights. I yeah, mean, yeah, flying on private jets and shit. Fifteen years old, sixteen years old. What kid isn't going to be, you know, blinded by that life? And it was just, I look back now and like, wow, how dumb was I? Or, or you know, the the mistakes that I made, or you know, the 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 path I went down, who would lead a child down that path? But evidently those people were good with it. So they, their conscience is clear. So I lost 30 some years of my life, but Hey, at least I'm still alive. And, you know, I'll get to see my grandkids grow up and hopefully do some positive things with the next half of my life. Yeah. We've talked a bunch, bro. I, I, I feel it. You know what I mean? You know, you got a great team team of people that support you you know what i mean and when you come out i think this next this next chapter of life is just is is gonna be it's just gonna be well lit you know what i mean like it's gonna be positive you know what i mean so many people know your story from what i know and we've never even met in person but we've talked a hundred times now you know what i mean i know you're i know you got you got you got positivity coming your way bro you know what i mean and i'm sure absolutely that's all it's it's you have to stay positive. I mean, there, I call it peaks and valleys in here. You have your good days and your bad days, but the the team that I've surrounded myself with and the people that are my real friends, not the people that you know, not the hangarounders or the people that want to benefit from you, but the people in my circle that are my real friends. Yeah, I would have never imagined people like that would be a true friend that cares about me. You know. Yep. It's so, you know, you, the, and if you look up Rick's story, it's, you know, you can, anybody can Google, you know, Google white boy Rick and you'll see what went on when he was a kid. But, you know, I told you, Rick, when I was growing up and I was in middle school at Bernie Middle School, you know, you used to come across Bernie to go to the pizza spot. My boys worked at the pizza spot. We knew who you were. You yeah. Know? Yeah. I lived, I lived right there by your school. Yeah. Did you, yo, know, as a kid, were you feeling yourself though? Like you say, you got addicted to the lifestyle and like, you know, oh, absolutely. You... I, I was, I, I thought I, you know, it's weird, but you kind of, 
you kind of take on this persona like when people, I was a kid and when I walked in, yeah, I walk in the dry cleaners and they knew who I was or in a restaurant you could get in where no other people couldn't or people treated you differently at the mall. It, it you, you soak it up kind of like a rock star. Yo, isn't that the ultimate lesson right there that like the ego is pretty much what brings everybody at the end of the day down? Like, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, I would agree with that. I would. I, I watch these kids now. Like a lot of people, they forget where they come from, and their egos get in the way. And I wish I would see more people. Like, you know, I love and admire Jay Z. You know, he's out of the Macy's projects in New York, but I think he tends to forget where he comes from. And I think more people should reach back and do more for the kids in the community where they come from. Even from here, I try and do fundraisers for the church. You know that yep. in my old neighborhood and. And I'll continue to do it when I'm out, but people just get lost. You don't yeah. know where you're, you know, you forget where you're from and you're caught up, you get caught up in the lifestyle and these guys are making hundreds of millions of dollars and they forget about the people that, where they come from. Bro, I think when you get out, bro, we're going to do a TV series. You know what I mean? Like there's, there's a TV series to be had after your movie comes out. There's... There's work for you in the world, you know what I mean? And like I said, you got... Yeah, I look forward to tackling it. I look forward to taking it on and doing good things and working with you and working with other people in our circle and just, you know, living a normal life, as normal as it can be after 32 and a half years in here. Yo, do you feel a little bit more of, you know, clarity or like a little more fresh air where you're at now, like in the minimum spot? Like I know you just... Oh, got... absolutely. I mean, I was in a... I was in church the other day, and the guy said, is there any lifers in here? And my hand almost went up. I had to, like, catch myself and pull it back down. Like, it, it's still, you still really don't realize that, you know, you're on your way out of here, you know? Do you feel like it's going to be a smooth transition? Are you, you know, is there, will the nerves be kicking up or? Oh, I mean, it'll, of course, I'll have a little nerves, but I think it'll be a smooth transition just by everyone, like I said. The team that I've surrounded myself with, the people that are my true friends, I think it'll make everything so much easier, you know? Yep. Yo, when you went in, Rick, how long did it take before you became acclimated to to being in the inside? Like, was it oh, a it year, took, two years, four me, years? Never? It probably took me a couple years, you know, because I was living a good life, you know? I was living in a nice house. I was driving the best cars. I was wearing the best clothes, and... Then you're put in a cell where, you know, you can reach, touch both walls side to side with your hands. And it was just a nasty environment in which, you know, I tell people it's like now I'm used to it. And, and the sad part of it is, is it's like you tell a dog every day to go in a cage. Eventually, you don't have to tell him. He just goes in. Well, the sad fact of the matter is I, I became used to prison. And, you know, yeah. I can't wait to become unused to it. But. I became used to it every day. It became part of my life. Had you come across in prison some other, you know, like famous inmates? Had, you know what I mean? I know you. Oh, yeah, yeah. Kwame yeah, came I, in. I, I met Carlos later from the Medellin cartel. Uh, Sammy the Bull from the You Gang have one Gold. minute left. Uh, tons of, tons of high-ranking, you know, Steve Kalish, was, who was one of the smugglers out of the Noriega case. There's there's been tons of big inmates. Man. What a life, bro. I, I hate that I hate that you've been in for so long. You know, we've all known about hey, you. Hey, listen, I, 
we're not going to look at the past. We're just going to look at the future, you know? So we're going to go from there. We're going to get cut off. It was good talking to you. I hope all your listeners enjoy it. And I'll, uh, I'll give you a call in a few days, Mike. All right. You got it, Rick. And we'll, and we're staying on everything we said we're staying on. So I'll talk to you. All right, buddy. I'll talk to you soon. Okay. Take care. Tell everybody I said hi. You got it. Peace. Peace. The caller has hung up. Well, that was a pretty freaking unbelievable uh, interjection into this. That was white boy Rick that I did not expect to call me. But white boy Rick, um, you know, what happened was the feds took him as a 15-year-old, made him a rat, made him an informant. He was 15 years old. He didn't know what the fuck was going on. His dad was a gun dealer. His dad was a gun runner. When they went to talk to his dad and try to put pressure on him, <clears throat> excuse me, Rick came to the meeting. When they were talking to his father, Rick answered all the questions. They realized early on, Rick knew all the drug dealers and, and the kingpins in Detroit. They said, why don't we use this kid? They used his ass. <clears throat> this is all documented. The documentary is coming out, the movie. This, you can read up on it. They used him. Detroit used him. The feds used him. Detroit was so corrupt at the time. Mayor Coleman Young's niece was involved in the game. She was dating a drug kingpin. Rick was in their mix. When they were when the feds were finished using Rick as a as a as an informant, Rick continued to deal drugs. He sold cocaine. He he made his way to Miami. Went to Miami, made his connect out there, started moving a lot of weight back in Detroit and around the country. Eventually, and he admits, you know, he made a mistake, obviously, by going in the life. But uh, he got caught, and he got caught with, I think it was only like three or four kilos of cocaine. And he got a life sentence. And the reason he got life is because they wanted his ass locked up and done. He was the last person given a life sentence under that law. There is no more life sentence on a nonviolent drug offense. And he's been in for 30 years. Finally, his story is getting told. And listen, he knows he fucked up as a drug dealer. You know what I mean? Like he said, his ego got caught up. He got caught up in the life. He was 15 years old. The feds were giving him $1,500 cash. They were flying him out to Las Vegas to go to the Hearns fights, to go to the big boxing matches so that he could inform on the dope dealers that were going on over there, that were that were showing up to the fights and making deals. So it's a tricky, tricky situation. Um, I got to know Rick because I was doing research for my Detroit show that I was earlier talking about, and... Uh, while I was doing the research, I met a kid named Scott Bernstein. Excuse me. Scott Bernstein was doing all the research on Rick's life and all that. He's, he's got a uh, thing called Gangster Report. And it taught, it, he, he, he's incredible at research. He knows every detail of the history of crime in Detroit and criminals in Detroit and gangsters all over the world. <clears throat> got to know him. He... And this is just, I'll just be real with you. Um, we knew that Rick was, you know, he had never gotten paroled out of Michigan. And he was up for parole every five years he got denied. And we knew that there was something going on. Some Somebody in the higher up rankings in Michigan's system, they were keeping him locked up. They did not want this guy free to go anywhere. Somebody had a personal vendetta. They used him as, they looked at him like trash. 
and they just fucking kept them locked up. So through my experiences and relationships in Detroit, I knew a couple high-powered officials, and I wasn't, you know, I'm not saying I knew them so great, but I knew them pretty well, and I'm not going to name any names, but we basically started like a little campaign just to get to the governor. And we kind of, we got to the governor about a year and change ago, got to the governor, let the governor know, number one, if when this movie comes out, it's going to be a huge black eye on the city of Detroit. I don't care if Detroit's making a comeback or not. When people hear about this shit that was going on, you're going to you're going to get knocked down. You're going to get knocked down a couple steps backwards. So we made some phone calls, put a little there was some pressure put on, and the truth of the matter is Rick got up for parole, got in front of the board, and for the first time in his life he got paroled out of Michigan. <clears throat> And I was just, I was happy to be a part of it. I was just a cog in the machine that was making it happen. He got paroled and years ago while he was, while he was locked up, he had gotten involved, didn't get involved. He had just some bullshit about a stolen car ring on the outside and his sister knew somebody. Basically they tricked him again and they said, yo, if you just say that you were part of this, we'll just, we'll, we'll, we'll let, we'll let it go. We'll commute your sentence and you'll be good. Bottom line is he admitted to it. They gave him a racketeering charge and now he's got to do another two years, you know, after he's paroled. So now he's in Florida in minimum security, thank God. But it's been a fucking sick story. You know what I mean? To be locked up on a nonviolent drug offense after you were being used by the powers that be 30 years of your life. I don't want to say gone because you're alive and you live and you have experiences, but you're locked up for 30 years. In the documentary on his life, the guys that were hired to kill him, they're out of prison. The dudes that got 10, 15 bodies on them, they've been out for 10, 20 years. They're out. The, the dope dealers he was informing on, they're out. Everybody's out of jail except for this guy. And so anyway, through the research I was doing and after we got him out, you know, we, after we made a, you know, made a move to get him paroled, uh, Scott Bernstein got me on the phone with Rick and that's how we kind of started this, you know, this friendship and through Rick, Scott Franklin, Scott Silver, the writer, uh, Jan Demange, who's directing the movie. I, I actually, I developed a friendship with Scott Silver, Scott Franklin, and so uh, it's it's kind of been an interesting web, you know, and it all comes back from Detroit, uh, back to Detroit. And so that was kind of a cool thing. You guys just listened to me talk to White Boy Rick, and that was totally unexpected. And anytime I see an 866 number coming, I know it's him. And uh, now you got a little taste of kind of what I'm about, where I'm from, and just, you know, the people I know. And, you know, it's, it's interesting because... Growing up, my dad had friends that were on definitely on both sides of the law. I could say that because I just want to be real. Uh, he had friends that owned massage parlors along Eight Mile. That maybe you know he had friends that maybe were in the drug game a little bit. And you know they didn't tell us this when I was a kid, but as I got older, I realized what was going on. And anyway, my dad had an incredible circle of friends. One great friend was the top doctor in Detroit. One was a lawyer. One was a doc, one was the fight doctor who could get you anything you wanted if you were an athlete entertainer, and one of his friends was Underworld, and these were his dudes. And I realized, look, my dad didn't judge people. I don't judge people. 
Me and my brother, we got friends of all walks of life. I don't give a fuck. If you don't do me wrong, I'm not going to do you wrong. And, uh, you know, I'm just not one of those people who thinks somebody's... Now, listen, there, yeah, there's pure evil out there, but there's also people who just, you know, come from a certain circumstance. They do what they have to do to make things right or just to to live their life. I don't... For better or for worse, I've always had you know, characters around me in my life. I just always have. I don't judge them. You know, I think there can be good in anybody unless you're fully mentally ill and sociopathic killer. I'm not down with that. But if you're a hustler and you're doing your thing and you choose a certain life, I'm not, I'm not, I, I don't judge you. I don't give a fuck. You know what I mean? I, believe me, I always say if it wasn't for stand-up comedy, who knows what I would do? I don't know. I wasn't a good drug dealer. <clears throat> I sent a pound of weed back from college one time. It came back to me with a fucking stamp from a sheriff's department on it. It was the last time I ever did anything. I knew I wasn't good at it. It's not my thing. I don't speak the language. I'm not smooth in those scenarios. And personally, I'm too light. I'm just too... <clears throat> I, I enjoy the long game. I'd rather write about it. I'd rather tell stories about it. I'd rather talk about it. You know, I'm not... I wasn't cut from the... You know, I wasn't cut out for it. Did I go through a few-year phase of stealing car radios and robbing things? Yes. I am not proud of it, but it was just in my. It's just what I chose to do for a minute. Would I leave the house with a fucking a BB gun, go out with my boys, shoot windows, get radios, sell them for $80 to the Chaldean Arab community on Monday, get cash? Yes. Did my mom find $500 cash in my drawer one day and say, where's this from? Yes. Did I say I was selling clothing? Yes. Did that make sense? No. Point is, I don't judge you. I love characters. It's why I write. It's why I do stand-up. And, you know, ironically enough, I'm looking to the left and I'm staring at the comedy store sign. I've been talking for almost an hour and a half. It's a long podcast. I could probably go for another marathon. Um, speaking of which, my boy Shane Powers did a marathon 24-hour radio program. Shout out to Shane. I think you're going to make it in the Guinness Book of World Record, bro. Um, so why would I complain about an hour and a half podcast? I don't know. Um, but here I am back at the comedy store. I was highlighting the year. This is where you got to notice, recognize the omens in the world. Recognize the signs as they come to you. I'm telling you about writing a project in Detroit and white boy Rick calls me from prison. There are signs, be aware, be awake. Um, But what I was saying was the story that I wrote about my dad and his friends, I wrote the pilot, Eminem's manager read it, he loved it. He wants to put Eminem down as an executive producer. All this sounds like crazy bullshit, but it's not. It's real. It's true. We're trying to figure out. uh, We tried to pitch it to a couple places, and the note I kept getting was that this lead character was too pacifistic, too too much of a sideline character, which he's not. He's dipping his toe in the world. So I basically had to just go back to the table. I went back to the table. I did some rewriting, crafted it, sent it to a couple more friends, Dice Clay being one of them. Andrew Dice Clay called me last week. He read it, loves it, wants to be a part of it. We'll see what happens. This business is upside down and fucking bananas. In my opinion, I wish that I could just write something, go attach the actors that I want in it, and give us a network to put it on. That's what I wish. You know what I mean? And I'm sure every creative head loves that. 
And the good news is the world over here in Hollywood, it's changing. There are new platforms. There are digital platforms. There are going to be platforms where the middleman starts to get more cut out, where you're not going to be getting some bullshit-ass note from somebody that has no idea what kind of life you're in or what life you're talking about or story you're talking about. I don't hate on that. Like I, I don't have any hate towards or anger towards executives because they got families to feed. They got to keep their job. They got to do, you know, they got to stay on point. It, they go to work every day. I'm not. I'm not one of those bitter. I'm not a bitter artist at all. You know, I've been fortunate over the last few years. You know, I wish I was. I wish I had a hit show already and 200 million in the bank. I don't. But um, that's the plan. Just write great things, do great things, share. You know, I was watching Chappelle's new special last night. Talk about a genius. I was lucky back in the day to do 14 shows with Chappelle. I opened for him. I knew he was a genius then. He says he's a genius in his act. He is a fucking genius. He's been up at the comedy store a lot lately. Um, But I watched his special last night, and he knocks it out of the park. 100% straight up, Chappelle's genius. I don't care. You can come at me. He's not that funny. Bullshit. If you you say Chappelle's not that funny, I don't even respect your opinion. For real. You know what I mean? Sorry. Uh, but anyway, I think I'm going to wrap it up. I think I'm going to wrap it up. I could probably keep going, but I'm not on some marathon shit. Mike Young, stories that need to be told. You can find us on SoundCloud, Stitcher, iTunes, All Things Comedy. I am officially now on the All Things Comedy podcast network, All Things Comedy network. Uh, Bill Burr's on the board, Ari Shafir, Al Magical, I think Steve Simone's on it, Eleanor Kerrigan, very, just a good crew of like-minded individuals. Um, I, I kind of want to call my brother and just give him some New Year's love. You got to hear my brother because he sounds just like me. So I'm just going to call my brother real quick and see if he doesn't answer. Let's see, my brother, Bam. This is my brother, Robert Young. Had Young and Sons Construction. Sold it to my cousin's company, Blue Team Restoration. And they're killing the game. Let's see if Rob answers. He's probably taking his kid to What up? What up? Chilling. You're on my podcast right now. What are you doing? I'm on your podcast right now? Yeah, are you laying down? I'm laying down, chilling, just watching some tube, man. New Year's Day, kicking it. How was New Year's? New Year's was unbelievable. Unbelievable. I had such a good time. Went downtown to this dope-ass restaurant. Yeah. And and uh, totally didn't see the ball drop, which was funny as hell. By the way, I forgot about like, the ball drop. We... The, the the balloons accidentally dropped where we were. They accidentally dropped at like 11.40. Seven million balloons fell out of the sky because the netting couldn't, right. couldn't hold them, which was hilarious. <laughs> it was hilarious. Right. People were popping. Yeah. It was, yeah, who cares about the ball? It's a new year. Yeah, balls, balls. Balls, so are, I, uh, balls are balls. I was looking around like I was scoping. It was like I was, we went to this castle, like a restaurant, like a, like in an old school building, like the Whitney downtown, but different. It's called Republic. It was um, it was called Castle Hall. And it Sweet. was a beautiful old building. So I was wandering around the building after dinner, 
and after like a few drinks and stuff, just checking it all out, I came downstairs and everybody was like, well, that was cool. That was great. You know, happy new year. I'm like, what do you mean? They're like, it's new year's. I'm like, when they're like 10 minutes ago. Hilarious. You were, <laughs> you were touring the castle during new year's. I was literally tur- like looking at the architecture, talking to the owner of the building. Like it was just two of us wandering around. We came back to the party and it was like over. Like everybody had put the streamers down, the blow horns, and people were going home. Yeah, people were cleaning up. Happening. They were already people cleaning. were literally cleaning up. Yeah, and it was over. And then we went to Pats on the on, on the lake. Had a blast at Pats. So oh, Pats was the Pats was the best. Yeah, it was great. We danced till about four o'clock in the morning. Oh, that's had awesome! A great, great time. That's awesome. Yeah. Yo, bro, you want to hear something funny? So I'm on, I'm on my podcast right right now, and I'm 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 going over. I'm recapping highlights of the year, and I'm talking about you know mm-hmm. doing the book was a highlight, and I'm talking about you know my situation with you know with Doug and the Detroit movie stuff. It was a highlight, and I started talking mm-hmm. about just you know mom getting kind of hit hard, having a tough year, and you being home. And I transitioned into talking about dad, and I started talking about you know. My my brother, this is Robert Young on here. Is my brother? He's going to be executive producing any of my stuff that if it gets greenlit TV wise. But point is, I was talking about dad, and I was transitioning talking about dad and his friends in Detroit seventies. I started telling those stories, and in the middle of it, White Boy Rick called my phone, and I just so I just talked to him for fifteen minutes in the middle of the podcast, which was funny. Not so funny. Great. Was he? Were you able to hear his voice in the podcast? Hundred percent, just like your voice. You're because your your my phone is right now plugged in to the podcast, so it's clear as day. You have basically you have your own microphone right now. You just oh, that's great. Yeah, that's so great. So we talked to Rick and just you know he was telling his story and just kind of uh-huh. how it all circles back to Detroit and you know stories that need to be told from back home and how you and I yeah. grew up. We grew like I just was saying. We grew up. We just didn't judge people that way. We weren't like, Dad had friends on all sides of everything. He had a friend who was the top surgeon, a friend who might have been in the underworld, a friend who was a doctor, another friend who was a lawyer. You know what I mean? There was no judgment going on, which is kind of my favorite thing about where we grew up. You know? Yeah, it's the kind of thing like when we were little, we used to say to each other like we could only talk to each other because nobody would believe us. Yeah, you felt like right. You felt like you were lying. Yeah, we were. We grew up special, man. We grew up in a special place, special time. And, you know, some people get lucky with that stuff. It's like they're at the right place at the right time. We were born at the right place at the right time with the right family and the right brothers, you know, the right relationship. And we went through all of our stuff. But I think we realized, like, the greater part of it all is, is uh, you know, is... is is what other people it's hard to explain to other people that just don't have it but uh you know we got that thing man it's we're lucky we're some we're two lucky brothers i think about it all the time yeah and lucky, i don't you know, i don't i don't believe in luck as far as when it comes to work but i believe in luck mm-hmm. where you're born who you're born around mm-hmm. you know what i mean like we got yeah. luck we got we got lucky coming from the parents we did because we got to see yep. i would say mm-hmm. I always say we got to see three tax brackets. You know what I mean? Yeah. We were, you know, Red Leaf Lane, the first house we grew up in, small as hell. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. but we didn't know what we, you know, we don't know any better, but we're living in, you know, I, I would say below middle class. You know what I mean? Like, whatever you yeah. call that, working class. 
on Red Leaf. Yep. Yep. Dad, dad busted his ass to the middle class, right? Yep. Got around, you know, a different mix of people, you know? Mm-hmm. Dad kept busting his ass, you know, to the next class. And it was like, we've seen the lowest bottom, 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 you know what I mean? And we've seen some yep. high-end, high-end shit. And I think just yep. like we're so lucky that dad taught us that lesson of don't judge anybody. You know, my our dad would our dad would be in Detroit. He might see a pimp that he knew from high school. No joke. Mom, remember mom told us that story? They'd be downtown like there'd be like a dude in a fur coat like, Sam, how you doing? Like, yo, Willie. You know, dad yeah, just yeah. ability yeah. And, to and walk. His whole life. You... Go ahead. I'm sorry. By the way, side note. My brother, he'll talk for another two hours. He loves a good talk. But luckily, my phone, but I got to do some talking for a sec. But And my phone's only got 3%, Rob, so you've got like, we've literally only got three minutes with you because I'm going to wrap it up anyway. But, Dad, I was just going to say that, like, Dad was able to walk in all worlds with equal proficiency. That's how I, how I say that. You know what I mean? He just, I don't give a shit if you're the president if you're a Hall of Fame baseball player, like some of his great friends were, if you're a drug dealer who might, you know, who owns some shady shit on the side, he's got love for you there. You could be the doctor to the stars and celebrities and entertainers. He's got love for you there. You could be a kid. And, and dad had a, he loved the, you know, the kids, the cousins. You know what I mean? Everybody loved to yep. be around dad. And when you give love, that's a perfect example. I'll say that for 18, 2018. Give love. Cause you're gonna get mm-hmm. love. You will get love. You will, and it will feel good. And I, I you know, I'm not. I don't preach shit, but like, that's. I saw it firsthand. I've seen it. I've witnessed it. You know what I mean? Don't be a bitch. Yeah. Don't be an egotistical maniac. Don't be a judgmental prick. You know what I mean? Give love and watch it come back. It's like, look at you. My brother gives love. If you ever meet my brother in person, and every single person says this, they like him more than me. All my friends out here. He just has no judgment, you know, mm-hmm. and just does it sometimes yeah. become you talking to a homeless person for 86 minutes when we should have been on the road? Yeah. Could you cut the conversation at half sometimes? Of course. But the bottom line is it's all love. And that's why you got, you know, you have so much love. You know, Mike, you did all the talking and usually I do all the talking. Fine. Yeah, I know you only got a couple of blips, but I love you more than anything in the world. You know that. Oh, All your nice. people out there, you know, have a great 2018, taking in the new year, day one, super duper podcast. Everybody that listens to it loves it. And, uh, you know, I love you. I and, love uh, you. All right. I'll call you later. I love you. I'll, I'll, all right. Love you. Bye. bye. Shit. At this point, I should probably call my nephew. How long have I been? An hour and a half? I think about an hour and a half. It's my longest podcast. I'm really enjoying it. Um, anyway, 2018, let's wrap it up. Whether you're, I don't know if you're driving, hiking, whatever you're doing. This has been a blast. All love. Every single Monday, I'm going to do a podcast. They're going to be released probably on Tuesdays. Tell your friends, tell your family, Mike Young, stories that need to be told. Find me at real Mike. I'm sorry. On Instagram at the real Mike Young. Instagram. At the real Mike Young. Twitter, real Mike Young. Twitter, real Mike Young. Instagram, the real Mike Young. And eventually one day I'm going to have my own freaking name. I'm going to get my whole name. It's going to be my name. But 
Stories that need to be told, SoundCloud, Stitcher, iTunes, check it. God bless everybody. Have a great, healthy, strong, do-what-you-love year. Find the fun. Find the fun. Find the fun. Peace.